but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hi everyone, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm James. I'm Jonathan. This uh, mid-French Open episode has been a little bit tricky for us to record because <laughs> there's just a whole lot of outside tennis stuff that, <laughs> that just sprung up the last day, mm -hmm. like a flat tire. <laughs> we had to cook dinner during the day today, and then we're going to go drop the car off after recording, come back and edit. Unexpected pleasures. <laughs> like? A flat tire. Oh, you were being sarcastic. <laughs> yes. Here. I can tell you what has been an unexpected pleasure, however, has been the plethora of goodies that Mariah has given her fans this week. The memoir on Tuesday, the album on Friday, the nugget in the memoir that she recorded an alt-rock album simultaneously while she was recording her Daydream album in the mid-90s. And this album has just been out there you could have found it. She had this secret lying in record stores, lying on the internet for anybody who wanted to, to really do some sleuthing and kept that secret for 25 years. And we're going to get that, it seems. We're going to get that alt record with her vocals sometime soon. She recorded this project and then got her friend Clarissa to come in and layer her vocals on top so you couldn't really tell it was her. If, if you know her voice, you can hear like some, some of the background stuff. But the entire album is written by Mariah. Her background vocals are on it. That can be found on the internet right now. Go to YouTube and look up. The group name is Chicks. And the album is called Someone's Ugly Daughter. <laughs> and it's a, it's a very accurate mid-90s, like, post-grunge alternative rock. It would sound at home on, you know, like, Empire Records soundtrack. Or in the background on Dawson's Creek, definitely can hear it. She, has, she just has a really good ear for genre. I saw somebody tweet that, imagine Mariah having to sit in that Grammy audience in 1996 and watch Alanis get those awards. While not only did she have the Superior album, but she also had the Superior alt album, which is not true. <laughs> what? No. Which is not true. Alanis' record, Jagged, Jagged Little Pill, is a, a goat of that genre, right? Yes. But, but Mariah it, was probably it, like, oh, I can do that. Yeah, it was hilarious. <laughs> Now, unfortunately, Mariah will not be performing at Roland Garros, as she did the U.S. Open. So I think the event will suffer greatly for that. But as far as the tennis goes this week, we expected a lot of upsets, uh, a very unpredictable week one, just because how often do we see, you know, U.S. Open and Roland Garros two weeks apart in the fall? The weather sucks. There's new balls. There's all the stuff. To and be clear, we, we see slams two weeks apart. Historically, we we've did. seen that. Someone For, may want to send a memo to Dominic Team. He's played some of those. Well, not, not quite. But for a good century, <laughs> Roland Garros and Wimbledon were two weeks apart. Borg won a few of those channel slams, if you will recall. There's a bigger gap now. But, uh, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, in the autumn, this is highly unusual. And without a clay mini-season to lead up to Roland Garros. The title of this episode is Kick Rocks Eat Dirt, 
if you have listened to the rarities, you will get that reference. If not, uh, take this as a challenge to to buy the record. <laughs> and there, there are quite a few people throughout this episode that, that really are in need of being told to kick rocks and eat dirt. <laughs> Which is not surprising. They tend to always come on the men's side of the draw. But they're not alone. We, you know, we don't want to sound too misandrist. So there are, <laughs> there are definitely, it's a evenly spread. Not evenly spread. Well, no. No. But yes, there's there a is spattering. One, there is one glaring. Vafankula, James. <laughs> you have to scream that, actually. We're at the quarterfinal stage. On the men's side... If you had been given these eight players for the quarterfinals, you'd have said that makes great sense. On the women's side, not as much. No, there are some true shockers in the round of 16 and quarterfinals on the women's side, even more than we've become accustomed to. But there were so many men making their first third round, their first fourth round of this tournament, way more so than usual, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But once you get to the quarterfinals, it looks like uh, just a regular slam, right? We have Djokovic versus Carino Busta next round. Rublev versus When was Tsitsipas. the last time we saw them play? I, I cannot recall, for the life of me. Hmm. It was There was only just one set, not even a full set played. That's probably why I don't remember. Right. Schwartzman versus Team and Sinner versus Nadal. Sinner is maybe not the surprise, but... Somebody whose career has risen very, very quickly. You know, making his first slam third round here, his first fourth round, now his first quarter. Rublev and Tsitsipas played, what, eight days ago in uh, in the final of Hamburg? Mm-hmm. And then Schwartzman team, big buddies, big friends. Yeah. Schwartzman coming off beating Nadal in Rome. Dominic team being one of the big favorites for this tournament. All four matches. Mm-hmm. They're what you would expect at this stage. Back to Rublev and Tsitsipas. Last time we recorded, the Hamburg final had not yet been played, so we didn't know that Rublev would go on to win that title. But both of those guys drew pretty tricky first rounds. Both came back from two sets to love to win in five sets. So definitely, I would question the wisdom of having a clay 500 so close to a major tournament. Clearly, this you is... You can't question the wisdom. This is different. What? This is pandemic okay. tennis. But this is a, a major that starts on Sunday, and the final of Hamburg was also on Sunday. Yeah. You could, you know, Roland Garros could have started on Monday, for example, but it wouldn't have changed anything for them because they played on Tuesday. Yeah, they got the le- they got the last starting spot in the first round. Like, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not there with you on that one. Okay. It's not ideal. You can agree on that. Um, without casting blame. Well, that's the point. Yeah. Pandemic tennis, none of it is ideal. So Rublev beat Sam Querrey, Tsitsipas beat Jaume Munar. And, you know, normally I am a little rough on players who play the week before a slam, but that's out the window this year. If you want to get clay practice, you really don't have any choice. The schedule doesn't allow players to make the best choices for themselves this year. Everyone's kind of just trying to do their best. So if you can get practice at a 500 and win those points and that money, uh, I, I can get why you would want to do that. I watched that Munar Sitsipas match and Jamo Munar played really well. Oh, he looked he looked like a clay version of Bautista to me on in that match. Everything very precise, compact, clean. 
Steph eventually, after getting accustomed to what was going on, was able to get the job done. But it was dicey there for a while. Right. So both of them did have to suffer through those first round matches. And now they're here in the quarterfinals to play again. Dominic team had a really difficult time against the young Frenchman Hugo Gaston, who beat Stan Marinka in the previous round. Gaston is probably the poster child for these young men upending the early parts of the men's draw. So many of them had their biggest results. His, for me, was the most exciting. Mm -hmm. After Vavrinka, remember his first round match, he played Andy Murray and he beat him easily. That was not pleasant viewing if you're an Andy Murray fan. He then goes on and takes out Kepfer, who is one of the, the players who's had quite the restart on clay. And at that point, you're getting the sense that, that Vavrinka, with how hard he hits the ball with the conditions, he's somebody who could really win this tournament. This could be a fortunate situation for Stan. And then he, as we say back home, imboca pina Gaston. And, okay, so Gaston was ranked 239 in the world. He's 20 years old. He's not one of these next-gen guys you've been hearing about all these years. He plays an exciting, aggressive, some call junk-balling game. But there's, there's a lot there. He's quick. He looks to expend a lot of energy out there. Like, he's kind of flashy. And the drop shots. Oh, my lord. I think against Dominic, he hit... Somewhere in the mid-50s, mm. I said, over or I saw, and over five s- Sadly sets. for him, he only missed around five of them, and all of them were in the last couple of games of the mm. match. His wheels, so quick. These guys would be, well, you drop me, I'm going to drop you back. And in the blink of an eye, in a hundred quick shuffles of those little feet, he's there to win the point. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he was aggressive off the return against Stan. He has a nice little cross-court forehand. I think junk balling is... Basically, always not a very nice term. Who said that? You know, people on Twitter. Oh, I mean, whatever. <laughs> I I enjoyed it. I enjoyed mm. watching Gaston play. He gave team fits. Team was up two sets to love, and Gaston came storming back and was right there in the middle of that fifth set before he got a little bit too cute once too often. Mm-hmm. Who else was notable on the men's side in the first first week? There was a big group of men who reached their first Grand Slam round three here. And Luca Brancher on Twitter very nicely put all of these in a spreadsheet and said, you know, how many slams it's taken them to reach their first third round. One of those people is Lorenzo Sonico, another Italian. Like, the Italians are unstoppable at this point. He played Taylor Fritz in the third round. They played what was the longest tiebreak in Roland Garros history. 36 points, 1917. It was tied with another woman's match. I don't quite recall which one, but it was mm. joint longest. And was also tied for the second longest in Grand Slam history. Tied with, I think, three other matches at other Grand Slams. Taylor Fritz had nine set points in that third set. He had lost the first two sets. Eight of those set points were in the third set tiebreak. Sonigo had seven match points, finally converted on the seventh with a drop shot. That was very exciting. Daniel Altmaier... We just saw him lose to Pablo Carreño Busta in the fourth round. To get there, this uh, young German, who is ranked 186th, he beats Feliciano Lopez, Struff, and Berrettini. Berrettini in straight sets. You see Galan of Colombia, he takes out Sangren, thank you, in straight sets. 
before losing to Djokovic in the third round. He's ranked 153rd. Norbert Gombos of Slovakia, playing in his very first Roland Garros, shocked Borna Cioric in the first round, losing to Diego Schwartzman in round three. Christian Garin, somebody who has been on our radar for a long time, kind of surprisingly for mm-hmm. us, he makes the third round of a slam for the first time. Federico Coria and Yannick Sinner both reached their first third round and played each other. Coria beat Benoit Paire in the second round. Sinner reaches the fourth round without losing a set to face Alexander Zverev, the runner-up at the U.S. Open. And oh, hmm, where do we start with this one? Well, let's let's <laughs> get through the rest of this little tiny section, and then we'll circle back okay. before we move on to the woman. Okay. There's a lot going on there. Sebastian Corda ranked 213th. You may know by now he is the son of Peter Corda. You may also know that he has two sisters who are big-time professional golfers. You knew of one of them, didn't know there were two. <laughs> right, and they're both quite good, actually. Very good. Like Gaston, these were Corda's first wins at either the ATP main draw level or Grand Slam level. He won the Australian Open t- junior title in 2018, 20 years after his father won the 1998 Australian Open men's title. Their mother, Regina... She was once ranked number 26 in singles, winning two doubles titles on the ITF circuit with none other than Jana Novotna. That was a nice little nugget mm-hmm. that we unearthed this week. His sister Jessica Corda is a five-time winner on the L- LPGA Tour, and sister Nelly is number two, the number two ranked player on the LPGA Tour right now. Corda got to play Nadal, lots of stories led by Corda himself about how much he idolized Rafa, this, this takeover of our tennis Twitter feed happened where the adorableness of that, we have this American player to stand. Wow, this is great. And then, if this means something to you, the receipts come pouring out because A1, he's an American player. <laughs> so people are all already skeptical. Uh-huh. And th- this was unambiguous. This was liking quite a few of... Uh, Donald Trump's tweets that were very specifically bigoted. <laughs> so there's that. Uh, so do with that whatever you will. Go do your uh, research on that. But Sebastian Corda did take out John Isner, so, uh, you know, kudos to that. Another person who whose tweets he likes a lot, <laughs> John Isner. So back to Sinner Zverev. This was the, the whole to-do yesterday, because... Sinner outplays Zverev throughout the whole match. Zverev is pretty passive and basically outplayed by this young guy. And after the match, he drops in press that I'm completely sick. That was a quote. I'm completely sick. I have a fever. And I don't feel good. (laughs) So, record scratch. Pull up. (laughs) Like, what? And that he had been feeling sick since after his third round match. Yeah. Mind you. This is a dude who lived through the Adria Tour fiasco, who got roasted for dancing shirtless in a nightclub. His reputation suffered a lot. And then on top of that, both his parents tested positive for COVID-19 subsequent to that. So this is a fellow who's had a lot of intimate experience with COVID-19, such that you would think he would be attuned to the ways the virus works the rules surrounding the the virus, knowing that you've been blasted in the press, you might then maybe make yourself an expert on these things. 
and and follow all the rules to a T. This is not what happened. This was a, a major like what the f. Mm-hmm. I felt, and I think I said this on the podcast that he had been doing some work during the U.S. Open to kind of repair the the goodwill that people want to feel toward him. Right? He admitted that he had maybe behaved recklessly throughout the quarantine period, and that it seemed like his parents' diagnosis had really shaken him and made him take this seriously. So He was all tore up at the trophy ceremony at the U.S. Open because his parents couldn't be there with him in New York. The French Federation tennis were swift. They responded with the quickness as to what was going on. They said Zverev is up to date on his tests, which have all been negative. And we're like, okay. The next sentence, his last test was on September 29th, which at that point... (laughs) was five days ago. ...was five days prior. (laughs) With results received on September 30th, today he received a reminder for his next test to be carried out within five days of the previous results. Now, right, like, so how, it would have been due that how day. are we to take this tournament and this federation seriously when you issue a statement like that? Like, are, what? Uh, th- this is what I mean. Like, a lot of things are going on, right? The, this is not all on Alexander. He should have known that, you know, if I have a fever... I don't feel well the night before. At the very least, I have to tell the tournament. And so things are kind of coming out slowly here. He said that he requested through his physio some medication. The physio went to the tournament doctor to get some medication the day before the match. So maybe he thought that was sufficient in notifying the tournament. Roland Garros, the the French Federation, says they were not notified of his illness before he went on court. The bizarre thing is, why are there not temperature checks? Like, that's the most basic thing. They have it in stores, in, at the dentist's office. Everywhere you go these days, there are temperature checks. We, we say all the time, like, what's the point of the temperature check if other things aren't in place? But at the very least. Like, this mm-hmm. is, you literally have somebody point something at your head. Right. For two seconds. And this is not to say that he has COVID. No. Like, nobody knows that. But when we were, you know, we're going through a pandemic where... The, the primary symptom is fever. One of the primary symptoms is a fever, and you have one. There is some responsibility that has to be spread around. Some of it is a tournament. Some of it is Zverev should have known that he at least should have told somebody. This is also happening against the backdrop of France having record high cases. Mm-hmm. They're squarely in their second wave right now. So much so that the government is coming up with new restrictions that we don't know how those will affect the tournament the rest of the way. Right. Per the New York Times, Roland Garros said the player would be responsible for notifying the tournament of symptoms before the match based on, quote, a sense of civic duty and responsibility. Okay, that's all well and good. But you have not created the conditions for players to show responsibility, right? Them playing is tied to money, ranking points, achievement, when a player is in the throes of a tournament, especially toward the later stages, you cannot assume that that person is going to act with the community's best interest. Mm-hmm. And that's not an indictment of players. That's an indictment of their naivete. The The mm-hmm. French Federation did not mm-hmm. create the conditions for people to make good decisions. It's, it's an indictment of them, period. Cool. I think to an extent, the players. Because sure. at this okay. point, we are well into playing tennis again during COVID. This is not new stuff. You've made many decisions. You've seen how a bubble should work. 
not perfectly, but certainly better than in Paris, so much so that you can tell people that this in Paris is not a bubble. It was so much better in New York. What were those differences? Mm. Like, <laughs> you can't... I'm not here to absolve players of, of this responsibility, but I'm also here to hold the French Federation to the absolute fire. Because how are players supposed to trust this federation and this tournament when Benoit Pair can play, but Fernando Verdasco can't? Right. So When rules are applied so haphazardly. Verdasco was booted from the tournament... But they changed the rules the following day, but it was too late because the draw had already been made without him in it. Shapovalov went on a rant about scheduling, and he said, oh, and another thing, this hotel is not a bubble. And a bunch of players have said that, that they see tourists coming in and out. Everybody that, who's been asked has said it. Yes. So it's no secret. Players have strangers who are vacationing, staying beside them in the next room. Mm-hmm. Players who've already lost in the tournament... They're now free to break the quote-unquote bubble and go about their business and come back to the hotel. Whereas in New York, even if you lost and you stayed on, you still had to maintain the rules of that bubble, yeah, that, that hotel-to-site bubble. Like, this is a complete farce. This is a French farce, <laughs> this tournament. That there hasn't been a big outbreak so far, that we know of, it could very well be happening and it's being stifled because Giudicelli. However, they are so effing lucky right now yeah, i think yeah they're playing with fire this other element of the zverev thing in this press conference he's telling ben rothenberg i'm not going to answer your question basically because you've been coming for me all summer and i don't like you <laughs> yeah so this uh you know i was drawn into this as well and you know what i actually tweeted something without knowing who had asked the question and then people were like well it was ben i'm like okay like it doesn't that doesn't change my opinion when I find out who asked the question. So you feel that Ben has been an asshole to Zverev. Okay. But the question is still very relevant. They're doing these Zoom press conferences. If he doesn't want to answer Ben's question, it is incumbent on other reporters in the call to ask the question. And, and it's like, okay, Alex, do you like me enough to answer the question that is extremely important to be asked? Like... Purportedly, he answered it in the German right. part of the process. Right. But, uh, <laughs> again, multiple things can be true. Fine, you as a tennis Twitter person despise Ben Rothenberg. Alex Verb, you despise Ben Rothenberg. Okay, that's your right. It doesn't disqualify the validity of this question. It is foremost, it is the most important question that needed to be asked mm. at this press conference. Not for stirring shit's purposes, but for the safety and the security and the continuance of this tournament. Mm. And I've I've heard, like, oh, he didn't want Ben to twist his answer. Like, listen, doesn't matter who asked the question, whatever reporter you don't like is going to quote that person. Like, the person who asked the question does not own the answer. Do you know what I mean? So if another reporter asks a question... The reporter who works for the New York Times is also going to report on it because it's a press conference. It's not a one-on-one interview. Also, if you are trying to avoid being Rothenberged, do not do this because he is a dog with a bone and he will not let that bone go. (laughs) So like, this is the absolute worst way to go about it, especially when you have been negligent. 
It's, it's mind-blasting. I mean, players are free to ice out whomever they like. Zverev is free to answer the question however he wants. What I don't get is like this army of fans for not just him, but for everybody. Any top player has this group of fans who will cheer when they're mean to a reporter or yelling at an umpire or dismissive to a question. Like, there is so much energy expended on people who don't need it. Like, people who are not persecuted. They're not put upon, right? Like, this insistence on treating your favorite player as a child who's helpless. The I way, don't get it. The way Zverev is defended from Rothenberg, you'd think that he was not at the Adria tour, that he was not lucky to not have tested positive, that he was not the one who was dancing shirtless, that he was not the one doing all these things. And also, let's not forget, Alexander Zverev has been, quite frankly, and I've witnessed it, a dick impressed to many different people. Yeah, many different people yeah. over the over the years. So, like, miss me and that's the with, this, with this crap. Yeah. And a lot of this controversy yesterday was read within the context of a tweet by Ben Rothenberg that a lot of us found offensive. I, I still think it's a small sect. And that's the problem for me. Not enough people find this offensive. The mm. first, like, six or so replies to the tweet had nothing to do with the use of alpha and beta. Mm, so read it. Down 3635, Sasha Zverev has five winners through two sets. I just don't get it, y'all. Walks around like such an alpha, plays like such a beta. Right. So, so to me, when I see alpha and beta, I think it's very gender normative. I think it displays a real toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. It's, and it's pseudoscientific, right? It's used oh. to inflict homophobia on folks, straight and gay. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's some it's some of the worst bits of of toxic masculinity of like you know that macho sports culture that clearly we are not into. I mean, it's something we've talked about on the show a lot. Yeah. But then other folks were saying like, "Hey Ben, this isn't cool because this is used in a lot of different ways within like far right conspiracy communities, the red pill people." I don't really know a whole lot about those communities because I avoid it like the plague mm-hmm. but uh but you, know, like, you can see the tethering between the two yeah there's a relationship it's, between the two it's just used in a similar but different way right it's all meant to emasculate yes. and maybe he didn't mean it that way but he was rightfully called out for that tweet and so people were saying well in the context of that when somebody talks about you like that why would you answer his question so that i mean it, it just complicates the whole conversation yesterday because that was tweeted during the match the alpha-beta thing needs to stop. It absolutely needs to stop by everybody. It has no place in sports. Did you know that the concept of an alpha wolf, like an alpha male, is actually based on a, a mistake? Like an error in observing wolves? It's so interesting. Mm. The alpha is actually just the patriarch. It's not like the one who fought everybody in one. Think about that. So stop it with the alpha, cuck, simp, beta, all that shit. Like, it's it's all cut from the same cloth to me. So just to recap, the final four matches on the men's side, the quarterfinal matchups, which will have happened likely by the time you listen to this episode, unless you jump on it with the quickness. <laughs> Novak Djokovic versus Pablo Carreño Busta. Andre Rublev versus Stefano Tsitsipas. Diego Schwartzman versus Dominic Team, and then finally Rafa Nadal versus 
Yannick Sinner. Now on the women's side, the final eight, we have Iga Sviantek, Martina Trevisan, Elena Svitolina, Nadia Pororoska, Sofia Kennan, Pedra Kvitova, and Laura Ziegemund. We're also awaiting the winner of Anz Jabeur and Danielle Collins. With the rain in Paris today, the tournament directors, the FFT, they decided to play Carreño Busta and Altmaier instead of Jabeur Collins. Instead, Colin Jabeur will play first up tomorrow on Philippe Chatrier, and they will then potentially have to play back to back to back. In our French Open preview, I had said on the women's side that I'd be looking for a first-time, three-time Grand Slam winner at the French Open. The candidates then would have been Simona Halep, the big favorite to win the tournament, Garbina Muguruza, Petra Gavidova. Svetlana Kuznetsova, potentially. Correct. Less potentially, but correct. Mm -hmm. Still correct. (laughs) And Petra is the only one left in the draw. Simona Halep yesterday was completely dismantled by Iga Svantec. Yeah. Actually, just going back, Azarenka was also a candidate to win her third. Yes, that was the other Anyway, but we came into this tournament with a clear favorite, more so than we've seen in quite a while, in Simona Halep, who had a 17-match win streak going back to Dubai, had won two titles this summer, was looking... You know, there's no such thing as a sure thing in tennis, especially in women's tennis, but... As much as anyone looked like a, a pretty good bet to win, it was her. And going into the round of 16, she looked great. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Steve Tinier because he tweeted uh, this um, foreboding tweet for Simona Halep two nights ago. He said last year, Simona Halep bodied, well, he didn't say bodied, but you know, Simona Halep bodied Sviantek. Anisimova then bodied Simona Halep. This year, Simona destroyed Anisimova, and then the the premise of the tweet was, and we have Simona Sviantek tomorrow. And what did we get? We got a complete throttling. I mean, it was a total decimation. (laughs) 30 winners in a match that barely lasted an hour. Yeah, I mean, Iga's aggression was too much for Simona. The cross-court forehand, the inside-out forehand, everything was working serve it was just uh it was comprehensive right Shviantek didn't face any break points Simona did not have any answers at any point through the match and it's not like she didn't fight she was there trying and she just didn't really have any anything to give her another big upset Martina Trevisan beats Kiki Bertens in the round of 16 in straight sets yeah what I love about a lot of these breakout players on the women's side Uh, and some on the men's side as well, is that they really had to go through it. They didn't benefit from these shocking losses. They actually inflicted those losses. Mm -hmm. And in the case of Trevisan, she battled anorexia earlier in her life and career, took a hiatus from tennis, and now is back just having life-affirming success. Yeah. I mean, she's 26 years old. She's not a young player. Uh, She came in ranked 159. She had to qualify beating Vikri, Asia Muhammad, and Astra Sharma. And then, when she gets to the main draw, beats Georgie, Coco Goff, number 20, Maria Sakari, and finally the number 5, Kiki Burtons, who, over the past few years, has been one of the very best players on the surface. 
somebody who's been expected to go very deep at the French Open was a bit unfortunate with injury at this specific tournament. And then again this year, cramping in the previous rounds against, we'll get to that, Sarah Rani. And, and not able to to bring her best in these unusual circumstances. Right. And and like Trevisan, Sviantec took out quality players to get where she is, right? She beat last year's runner-up, Vondrosova, in the first round. Goes through Chier, Eugenie Bouchard, who's resurgent, reaching the third round. And then just, I mean, sends Simona Halep packing. So that Iranian match. Yeah. While we're in this first quarter, we should talk about this now. Kiki beats Sarah Arani in 3 hours, 54 minutes. This match had everything. Late in the third, Bertens is cramping. Arani grabs her leg and mimics Kiki's injury, making fun of it, assuming that it was faked. She even goes on to say, well, I saw her in the player dining afterward eating. She, she was eating. Yes. So Kiki does gut out that match while cramping. She's carted off the court in a wheelchair, sobbing. For some reason, while she's leaving the court in the wheelchair, the trainer, like, grabbed her leg. Did you see that? I did Like, pulled her leg up, and Kiki screamed. I don't know. Just, I don't know why you're moving her leg. It was weird. And as Sarah is leaving the court, she screams, Va fanculo, and other expletives. Mm -hmm. I mean, you must have been able to hear her all over the city of Paris. I have not really ever seen something quite like it. Uh, So that wasn't enough. Irani went into press saying that she doesn't like to be played, that she, like you said, she saw Kiki in the restaurant afterward, like nothing happened. And I mean, I don't know, like if you're a top athlete, I assume you've seen cramping before, that it can kind of take over the whole body, but it can also dissipate quickly. You're also at the end of a match that's going on four hours. Right. Like the body is not designed to to deal with that kind of situation. Mm-hmm. And even if it is, you're not in that situation often enough to to know what to do. <laughs> like and in this scenario where we're coming back from a pandemic, like come on. <laughs> I've just never seen anything quite like it, but it's not surprising that Sarah would be the one to show us. <sighs> well, you know, I I um I hope she's able to go home, rest up, have some delicious tortellini. Mm-hmm. Uh, recharge her batteries and we'll and come again. Carolyn Garcia had a nice little resurgence here, continuing her run of good form. She beat Pliskova at the U.S. Open. She beats Contivate, the number 17 seed, in the first round. Then she's got Sasnovich, takes out Mertens, and finally falls to Alina Svitolina, who is becoming a very reliable second-week player in slams. One might even look to her as the favorite for this tournament now. That said, the moment you identify a favorite at this tournament, they bid us adieu. Yeah, yeah. Sviantek is apparently the betting favorite. I don't know how these things are are calculated or whatever, but I guess taking out Simona Halep so comprehensively is what got her that. But Svitolina's the number three seed. We'll see what happens. That second section in the top half is where... Azarenka lost in the second round to Shmidlova. Serena Williams pulled out after her first round match. Serena pulled out because of the Achilles injury that she picked up in New York, unable to to put her best foot forward. Literally. Literally. Um, subsequent to that, her and Venus have been 
gallivanting all over Paris, eating at every restaurant, mm -hmm. which has been weird, quite uh, weird, and also alarming. <laughs> Indeed, like you go through quarantine and strict quarantine for months stateside to then go live your best life in Paris with a bunch of Parisians eating fine foods and drinking fine wines. Yes, in the middle of the historic peaks of daily uh -huh. new cases in France. In that fourth round, we had Nadia Podoroska from Argentina and Barbara Krejcikova. Krejcikova is a very accomplished doubles player, a major winner, and she is seeing things come together in singles. She actually reached the fourth round, beating Pironkova on what would have been Jana Novotna's 52nd birthday. Jana was Krejcikova's coach before she passed away. On that same day, we got two yana nuggets mm -hmm. that warm the heart on her on what would have been her 52nd birthday if you listen to this show you know that yana was one of my og faves it broke my heart whenever yana and aranja had to play each other that was my sophie's choice <laughs> back in the day uh so krechikova wins and makes the fourth round on what would have been yana's 52nd birthday and then we learned that sebastian corda after he wins his third round match that his mother won doubles titles with Jana Novotna. So Podoroska has never won a match in the main draw of a slam. She's now in the quarterfinals here. She actually won the gold medal at the Pan American Games in 2019. Did not know that. A huge opportunity, to say the least, yeah. for these two women. On the bottom half of the draw, we are still awaiting the winner of Jabour and Collins. On Jabour, at this point... She's the first Arab woman to do pretty much everything mm -hmm. in tennis. She's building off of her great start to the year, has come back, and is building on it even further. Yeah. Next goal is to reach the top 20, according to her. Probably won't be long for that. Danielle Collins beating Garbinia Muguruza after being down double brick in the third set. We in, were on a Zoom call. In a, a very strange match. Yeah, we were on a family Zoom call. And it looked, the TV's on while we're, you know, paying attention. We just have to, like, glance over a little bit. And I'm seeing this thing develop, and I just, I couldn't quite believe it. I mean, it looked for us to be a total collapse from Garbinia in the third set. It was really weird. That said, if you are going to collapse, don't start doing it against Danielle Collins. No, because, because she will rub it in your face. Not only that, but she will run with it. <laughs> You Indeed. know, like if she's yes. getting the momentum going, she will, she'll build up that steam of fury and and race away. Mm -hmm. Sophia Kennan, the number four seed, beat Fiona Farrow today in another odd match. We'll talk about this in our umpire section in a moment. Petrik Vidova was very emotional in beating Zhang today. You know, it's been a while since she's re reached the stage at Roland Garros, and things are really falling into place for her if she has a few good matches. This was the first second week in Paris since tw 2015. If you recall, she made her Grand Slam comeback after the knife incident, the attack in her home at the French Open. Mm. Petra had a potentially tricky third round match against Leila Fernandez, the young Canadian, who won uh, the juniors, the girls title here last year. Leila was actually up 5-1 in the first set. Petra gets it to 6-5, and she finally converts the first set on that fifth set point. But Layla herself had two set points in earlier games. 
through the first and second sets, Petra puts together a nine-game run. After that, it's over pretty quickly. 6-3 and 6-1 in the second and third sets. All the way down in Karolina Pliskova's section, she's out to Ostapenko, who just thoroughly outplays her in every way. And it wasn't just ball bashing, right? It was a more mature, patient Ostapenko than we're accustomed to. And then you're getting visions of, what is it, 2017? Mm-hmm. And you're thinking, well, I mean, last year and the year before, you're like, wow, she'll never win anything ever again. But she plays one match like that, and you're reminded of what this woman can do, right? Because mm-hmm. really, what's stopping her? In these uncertain times, what would be more certain than <laughs> Yelena Ostapenko doing something like yes. this? Ostapenko, who up to that point had never won a match at Roland Garros unless she won the title. Mm-hmm. She then follows up beating Pliskova by losing to Paula Badosa of Spain. Who faces Laura Ziegemund in the fourth round. Ziegemund beating Petra Martic in the third round. Taking out Yulia Gerges in the second round. And Kiki Mladenovic in the first round. Remember that? That was something. So uh, Laura had a double bounce on her side that Kiki noticed. Everybody noticed except for the umpire and possibly Laura Ziegemund. I say possibly. Because Very you're, skeptically. Because you're a generous soul. No, because it was actually pretty obvious. Uh, Laura is not the type of player who will gladly concede a point, even if she knows she's wrong. I'm just going to leave it there. This is something that cuts across all sports, where people have all kinds of moral ideas and, and strong opinions about whether or not you should turn a blind eye if you know you can get away with something. Mm-hmm. Happens in cricket, where fielders claim catches that have bounced um, before they've been able to scoop up the catch. I've been in that position before, and sometimes you really can't tell. Mm-hmm. So I'm always a little bit wary of saying, but for real, for real, for sure, for sure. Because even when you are a player in that sport, as I was in cricket, you can't always tell. Because mm-hmm. some people are like, I play tennis. I know if this happened to me, I would know. Like, you don't really know for sure. The issue here is that Zygmunt's history is very checkered. Right. She is kind of like the Ur Yastremska. She has not really earned the benefit of the doubt. But at the same time, do I know what I would have done in that situation? No. I have no idea. You'd I may have, not have, have even noticed. You'd have turned your back and walked to the back like, of the baseline and be like, I'm ready to serve. Sorry, bitch. Set one. Done. That's exactly what you'd have done. <laughs> No, no. I may be a lot of things, but a cheater is not one of them. You're not cheating. It's within the rules. Right. As far as Miss Zygamond is concerned, though, she is an accomplished clay court player. Oh, yeah. This is somebody who knows how to play on the dirt. She's been in two Stuttgart finals, winning one of them. But she had never made a third run at the French Open before. Mm -hmm. Which was so... I had no idea. I had assumed she made a quarter somewhere because she's so great on the surface. And now she's in her first slam quarterfinal. But her career was upended by an ACL tear a few years ago. So it's Zygamund against Kvitova. Kennan against the winner of Jabor Collins. Podoroska against Svetlina. And Trevisan against Fiantek. So we're not necessarily guaranteed a first-time slam winner, but it is very possible. The only two slam winners left in the draw are Petra Kvitova and Sofia Kennan. Kennan could become a two-time slam champion oh my God. within this year, mm-hmm. winning two of the three slam titles. She would then have three titles on the year, matching Simona Halep. 
Indeed, that is possible. She's also one of two players to make the fourth round of every slam this year. Well, all three, I should yeah. say. Didn't she? I mean, she got double bageled in Rome, right? Yeah. A couple of weeks ago, she got double bageled in mm-hmm. Rome. We've got a few uh, stories, themes that emerged from week one, as well as a few et ceteras to go through before we are through with this episode. Yeah. What do you want to start out with? Well, in our preview episode, we predicted that the cold, the, the rain, the new balls, all of the condition stuff would be the story of week one. And that is indeed a story. But something well, that kind of came out of nowhere. Well, less rain than we thought. Yeah. The weather has been slightly better than was predicted. Still very cold. It's given us some makeshift kits, shall we say? Yeah. A lot of layering. Unique looks. Mm-hmm. Some people pl- wear the spandex on the top. Some prefer the bottom. Some both. I mean, but the people in the stands are wearing ski jackets, hats, toques. Nicholas Almagro is... Completely covered from head to toe. So disguised that he was mistaken for Conchita Martinez. The, I think uh, the on-air <laughs> announcer was like, "Oh look, and there we have Muguruza's coach, Conchita Martinez." <laughs> and it's uh, even with how covered he was, that was not. That is so rude, honestly. It, it really is. Uh, but this is new information, right? That Almagro is coaching Daniel Collins. Apparently, Collins reached out to the Moritoglu Academy, and they hooked up. He's doing sort of like a coaching uh, recruitment firm. So he hooked up Almagro with Collins, and they're working together. So the big story that presented itself this week is what happens all the time on clay over the past few years is Hawkeye on clay, line calling, the controversies over the ball marks, and the available technology that might be able to mitigate all these arguments. And we're seeing two distinct camps emerge. Yes. When it comes to Hawkeye now, it's people who are like, we need Hawkeye, we need Hawkeye, we need Hawkeye. Never mind, they really mean Fox 10, but we need Hawkeye, we need Hawkeye. (laughs) And then the the folks who are like, this is why we don't have Hawkeye. There is science behind it. Hold your horses. Mm -hmm. This is not about being anti-technology. This is not about being stodgy and upholding tradition. This is about trying to get it right. Even though you are trying to get it right, but you are going to be getting it wrong in a different way if you go the route of Hawkeye right. slash Foxton. So the fact that TV uses Hawkeye replays has muddied the waters a lot because very often the ball mark might contradict what you see on Hawkeye. Umpires and lines people are trained in how to read a ball mark. They know stuff that you and I don't. All, all this geometry about how the ball hits the clay and how it flattens and stuff, I don't know that stuff. But they do. Jack Sock does. A lot. No, Jack Shoe. Here, this Jack is where Shoe. I was going. A lot of the players don't know and don't appreciate that these people are actually highly trained. Now, I understand if there is technology available and it is accurate, if we can show that it's reasonably accurate or more accurate than humans, then why not use it? Right? Like, I totally get that argument. And we may get there. Fox 10 may be the solution. Maybe it's a hybrid. Maybe it's using this technology for replay and not replacing the actual human beings on court. I don't know. The argument against Hawkeye initially on other surfaces was it's slowing down the game. How Mm -hmm. much slower will we get on clay when the chair has to come down 
and well, check the mark. Right. There's already right. so many delays built in to clay court tennis because of that. Mm-hmm. So that's not really a concern. So we saw a few players really take aim at umpires, be it on the court or in press. But Jack Sock, as you said, was one of them. He, I mean, really the most reliable guy out there to harass an umpire. You, especially if she's a woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Arguing, he was arguing with Orly Tort about how to read a ball mark. She was trying to explain uh, in a language that's not her first language about, you know, how the ball compresses and how you're supposed to read it and all these things. And he was extremely dismissive. Just so, like, so condescending. Like, dude, you're winning a match. You've won a match. You, that is an achievement for you. Like, mm. just... Go with the good times. Yeah. It's been a dark road for you. These players are spoiled because they've come out of New York where Hawkeye Live was a thing. And for them, it revolutionized the game. Right. It was a completely new technology that made things better for them. And they don't understand why we can't use that on clay. Mm -hmm. Hawkeye Live is no different from the previous Hawkeye when applied to clay. And, I mean, this is a larger argument about automation. Right. If, if there's a technology exists that makes human beings obsolete, do you just say, well, that was a good 150 year run with live human line umpires and chairs. See you later. It's a, it's a fairly cruel outlook. Mm-hmm. It's a highly capitalistic outlook on, on how tennis works, because, you know, this is part of our sport. There's so many traditions that uh, outlive their usefulness. But I don't necessarily think this has outlived its usefulness. Mm-hmm. As Victoria Kesa pointed out on Twitter, getting rid of lines people is a slippery slope from getting rid of umpires. Because mm-hmm. where do you think umpires start in tennis, the well, majority right. of them? They don't just become a chair umpire. Right? You don't pray to Santa Claus and the next year you get a call. <laughs> mm-hmm. The other day, Novak made some flippant comments that he was kind of lambasted for in the, the commentariat and on Twitter. His response in press was, quote, with all my respect for the tradition and the culture we have in the sport, when it comes to people present on the court during a match, including line umpires, I really don't see a reason why every single tournament in this world, in this technological advanced era, would not have what we had during Cincinnati, New York. The technology is so advanced right now, there's absolutely no reason why you should keep line umpires on the court. That's my opinion. Of course, I understand technology is expensive, so it's an economical issue and a question mark. But I feel like we are all moving towards that, and sooner or later there is no reason to keep a line umpire. Yes, ball kids, of course, ball person, yes. But line umpires, I don't see why anymore, to be honest. Maybe you can tell me if there is any significant reason why we should keep other than tradition that we've had and have in this sport. And then. Like, this was all all fine and dandy, right? This is not new thoughts this is not like particularly super troubling thoughts and then he closes it with then i would also probably then have less chances to do what i did in new york parentheses smiling Mm -hmm. so i guess that was a joke i mean you know fewer chances would mean he could accidentally hit a ball kid because those have been deemed uh an occupational requirement (laughs) right like you just have fewer targets he was probably embarrassed about what happened in the U.S. Open, whatever. But it was really not not cute. And as someone who said, I'm looking inward and I'm trying to change and be better, I don't know how, how this statement vibes with that. 
I find it very hard to be charitable toward him when I read a kiss off like that. Mm. Yeah. Frankly. But the actual meat of of the response, he acknowledged that financially this is a big challenge if you were to convert all tournaments to electronic line calling. Um it feels like kind of a weird statement to me that when when players repeat these sort of things, you are kind of chipping away at the reliability, uh, the reputation of umpires, which is something that is extremely important to their career, obviously. But I guess I wonder what like what this new version is supposed to look like. Does it mean there's a chair, but but no line umpires? Is every ball being monitored? Like, will something beep if your ball is out? A lot of people assume that the chair umpire has replay. They don't, right? Like on that little tablet they use, they don't have instant replay. So they actually do have to come down and check the ball mark and whatever. If they missed coaching or if they missed a double bounce, they can't run it back. So there are obviously benefits to sort of beefing up the technology. I don't think it's necessarily to make the whole on-court staff obsolete. I feel like that's a really drastic step. There were instances, a few, as there are at any tournament, frankly, even with Hawkeye, maybe not Hawkeye Live, but with Hawkeye, where calls are made that are totally wrong. Denis Shapovalov felt completely aggrieved. Of course, there's no replay here in, in France, but uh, you only have so many replays or challenges that you can use when you're using regular Hawkeye to begin with. Mm. Where Where is the balance between technology and human error slash accuracy with right. this? I'm, I'm just not comfortable with getting rid of all of it. And then finally you have Hawkeye Live on hardcourts, but is it going to be Fox 10 Live? Or just Fox 10. <laughs> like, I feel mm. like we are, we're speeding towards something that we're not quite ready for yet. There's another element of this that I know you want to talk about. Because no matter how we sort playing conditions, officiating, line calling, there's always going to be something for players to complain about. They need that release, right? Right. I think that screaming at the umpire or whoever is kind of a, a pressure valve for players it's going to exist regardless, right? We we have the challenge system now. It has brought a lot of good to the sport, um, but we still fight about when to use the challenge. You fight about whether you can get a let or replay the point or <laughs> you or know. win the point outright. Like there, there are always things to argue with the umpire about. And I think in many ways it's the nature of playing a sport at a very high level, being under this type of pressure that most of us don't understand. And there's that person in that high chair who's the authority on the court who can be the receptacle for all of your anxieties and frustrations. You have a challenge system. You know a ball is out, but you use the challenge because you need the time. You need the time to collect your thoughts. You need the time to be mad at yourself, maybe. You get mad, you slam the ball into the net, you whack the net, you slam the ball toward the back of the court. There are all these different ways that players release their frustrations and, to be frank, manipulate the rules and system to their advantage. So it's, I don't think it's a, it's a wholly pure desire to move toward the light with this whole thing. <laughs> no, I mean, that's, that kind of stuff will always be there, regardless of whether there's electronic line calling or not. 
Um, I don't think that's necessarily a reason to discount it completely. No. But I think we need to understand that, like, just because there's electronic line calling doesn't mean that all sources of conflict over the rules have been removed. And sure, we should move toward a more perfect system, one where we get things right as much as possible. Mm -hmm. But there is a lot of human cost at the expense of that that we need to work through and find out what is what is the actual math and the actual cost and what we're willing to do? Whose careers are we willing to sacrifice yeah. in the process? So with all this this talk of Hawkeye, who gets wrapped up in all of that? The umpires. Mm-hmm. So one thing that is actually very cut and dry is <laughs> doesn't require Hawkeye or Foxton. Nicola Mau got in trouble for spitting on the court. And, well, this is a new rule because of COVID-19. It's not safe to be ejecting your saliva all over the court like players normally do on a clay court. I don't really know why you need to, but whatever. Rather than just take the knock, he had to enlist the help of the supervisor, the tournament doctor, the chair umpire, and just waste everybody's time. Finally, he accepted that, okay, this is a new rule, and he looked at the chair and said, well, you're not doing your job because you didn't tell us at the beginning of the match. Oh, okay. Just move on. Like, are you supposed to delineate every single rule in the rule book? Right? Just don't spit. Meanwhile, his his partner, Herbert, was just sitting there with his little pebbles hairdo, like, can we move on? <laughs> uh, Sophia Kennan's match today against Pharaoh was weird, and something happened that I can't recall seeing before. Pharaoh's coach was sitting very close to the the court and at some point Alex Kennan walked down to where he was sitting and sat right next to him this was after the first set which Kennan lost and so the on-air commentators were wondering is this tactical is he trying to psych out Pharaoh and it, right. it dovetailed with a shift in the momentum of the momentum of the match I don't know it felt tactical Kennan was bothered. She said she didn't understand why uh, Emmanuel Plonk, Farrell's coach, was allowed to sit there because she said typically the higher-seated player's coach is allowed to sit there super close to the, the court. She was bothered by it. Her dad went down, I don't know, to sort of try to snap her out of it. And then Mariana Veljevic gave her two soft warnings for coaching, said, I don't understand the words, but if I hear more i'm going to give you a code regardless of what is being said but she basically said i don't know what he's saying but i don't want to hear it anymore meanwhile with the speculation going on that alex kennan went down there to to be tactical about it john wortham went and did some scooping some snooping (laughs) around the grounds and found out that a there was no animus between Pharaoh's coach and Kennan, that they know each other and that Mm. they were joking about going out to have a drink, but no vodka or something like that. And that Kennan was just wondering, like, why is he there and I'm not there? You know, so he was like, well, I'm going to be there, too. Mm. It was very unusual. And he sat right next to him. The my initial reaction was, why? Why is he going to sit right beside him in the middle of a pandemic? Why? Right. Um, And Veljevic... In between points, she had her eyes trained on Alex Kennan. Like, she was watching him like a hawk after those soft warnings. 
as we move into this etc part of the episode i want to start with a reiteration another psa that we should refrain from retiring athletes before they are good and ready we saw this after the first round with andy murray losing meekly and while venus gave a fair fight against Schmidlova, she lost in straight sets as well murray struggling to come back this year from the hip situation he won a tournament last year after he came back it's not like he's been without success mm. but i guess the uh the thoroughness with which he lost and was beaten by Vavrenko was jarring to some folks and venus being 40 years old i mean they've been trying to retire her for a decade now yeah matt vlander said very early in the week that Andy needs to accept that he's no longer a contender for these tournaments and what he's doing is unfair to younger players because he's hogging wild cards. So, I mean, he was lambasted for this. A few uh, European folks on Twitter said they haven't heard Matt's on Eurosport since. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there is nothing inherently fair about the way wild cards are distributed, period, oh, to begin with. Quite the opposite. It is the most nepotistic thing in tennis, uh, right? Yeah. And nationalistic. Uh-huh. Like, if you're not from one of the select few countries that has reciprocal wildcards, it is more difficult for you to build a career. And given that the sport is struggling, that now more than ever you need big names on the TV, on the telly, because not that many people are able to show up in person to see them... What are you doing, Mats Vieland? Right. He has a lot of opinions that are just unnecessarily mean-spirited, I feel. And this one is simply not factual. Andy is is still somebody who can win matches. Also, if and when Andy is losing first round every single tournament, right, next year, mm. that's a totally different situation. Andy's still building his ranking. Now, pandemic tennis is not normal tennis. If Venus loses her ranking and is in the 200s, and can't win matches and can't build her ranking and gets five wild cards in a row and loses them all, goes through a year of getting wild cards into slams, that's a totally separate issue. Right. And we're dealing with ageism here as well. But if you're interested in fairness, really, you either abolish reciprocal wild cards, you make wild cards based only on ranking. There are a lot of things that would benefit the wild card system much, much more than one player saying, no, I don't want one. Also, this is about you and your relationship with your standom and fandom, right? You, a lot of y'all are bandwagonists for whom the worth of your fave is wrapped up mostly in their ability to win and perform for you Mm. and provide you enjoyment. You don't really care too much about the enjoyment that they're gaining from tennis, like their willingness to engage in the process and the struggle. That, that is their business, right? Like, they're not yeah. here for you. And so I would encourage folks to grapple with those things. Like, this idea, we, we see it all the time. Oh, Sampras did it right. He went out on top. Well, you know what? Sampras was languishing in the rankings for a while, and then he had that great U.S. Open run, and then he stopped. Yeah. You uh, wanted Federer to stop before he came back in 2017. And then he won two, his, what, what, three more slams since then? This 
this need for your faves to go out at their best. Like, not everyone can do it like Steffi Graf, right? Win the French Open, make the Wimbledon final, and then say goodbye. It's not realistic. Also, to be clear, Steffi did not do that for you, Steffi fans. She did that for her. <laughs> yeah, and so, if these players want to continue to play for themselves, let them. Because the ones we're talking about right now, they are not doing it for the money. They don't need the money. So they clearly think they, they are getting something out of it. So just leave them be. Rafa was asked about what it was like on court playing the French Open under these circumstances and he was quoted as saying it's sad but perhaps it should be sad in the world there are many people suffering it needs to be sad and that was a sobering reflection that felt appropriate Mm -hmm. rafa has been very existential throughout this whole covid crisis i think he's suffered from not being able to play and being separated from people and not every player is going to be honest about that It's similar to what Goffin said after he lost to Sinner in the first round. He said that it was difficult to focus, and with the pandemic and the stress of, you know, getting tested and then waiting around to see if your test is negative, that it left him feeling kind of empty out on the court. It is oddly comforting to hear that that sort of uh, emotional honesty Mm -hmm. from a player. And then you segue from deep emotional thought and contemplation to the vapidness of Dominic Team saying, I think it never happened before that two major tournaments were only two weeks in between. <laughs> so, you know, these press conferences run the gamut. Indeed. The last thing that we're going to touch on here happened very early on when Chris Goldsmith, I think he's at Tennis Talker on Twitter, tweeted about Naomi Osaka when he just happened to realize, oh, wait, Naomi Osaka is not in the French Open draw. He says... Only just realized Naomi Osaka isn't playing French Open. Tennis less of a priority? Question mark. In September, hamstring injury slash protest wins US Open, hamstring injury slash holiday. There he's delineating Naomi's schedule in, in September, building on this, this idea that tennis is less of a priority for her, that her schedule was having a hamstring injury and protesting. Winning the US Open, I guess that's when she had tennis as a priority, And then hamstring injury again, holiday. The holiday being her taking time off to go to Haiti to go and explore her roots, presumably. And in response to somebody else, he follows up saying, with a quip about going on holiday with, quote, your rapper boyfriend and run around having fun. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's a lot to unpack there. Mm -hmm. First of all, let's talk about the tennis thing. Was there criticism when a bunch of the European players did not come to the U.S. Open? I don't know. We certainly didn't criticize. I don't know if this gentleman did. Naomi just won a Grand Slam, decided not to attend the next one. On a different surface, in the middle of a pandemic. Which many, many players did in reverse for the U.S. Open. Um, The number one player in the world, Ash Barty, didn't play either. She was out here watching footy with her beer in Australia. Yeah, so the one thing is... Who cares? Like, players can do whatever they want, especially in a weird, difficult year like this one. Uh, the other one is your rapper boyfriend. So I've been hearing this a, a lot. lot. A and lot. And I do want to make it very clear that this is a dog whistle. It's racist. It started in earnest when Naomi won the U.S. Open. And we saw pictures and video of Corday at the, at the match 
He was wearing, what, a defund the police t-shirt. Mm-hmm. And then he was on court afterward with her taking pictures. And in one of them, he was giving the middle finger. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of moralizing and this coded attacks on Naomi's innocence. These threats yes. on her innocence from this low-class, low-rent rapper boyfriend. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so there's a lot of people saying oh she's gonna she'll grow up and she'll get a kind of a more sensible partner mm-hmm. right corday is a, a grammy nominated artist he's accomplished in his own right uh because he is a black male and a rapper with let's be honest his hair as well yeah i guess uh, for some people you know they would never say it outright obviously but using this rapper boyfriend terminology is a way to say like well she'll grow out of it or this guy is not a sensible choice for her for whatever reason that we're not going to get into. But there's this air of danger and even criminality that's sort of corrupting this young, innocent woman. We saw it in the 90s with Mariah, and then later on when J-Lo unsurprisingly copied her. (laughs) When Mariah broke through from her cocoon in her butterfly phase and started... In earnest, in 95, with the fantasy remix collaborating with ODB, and that video came out, and folks were like, what is going on? Why is there a rapper Mm. in this video? And then 97, now she's working with Q-Tip, with Puffy. Uh, She's already been working with Jermaine Dupri. She's showing up at parties. Everybody in the press is talking about Mariah and her rapper boyfriends. Right. And this is a little different because Mariah is a mixed race woman, but for many people, she was white presenting. And to see a a white woman associating with mainly black men brings up a whole Mm -hmm. lot of historical racism that is very, very complex. Uh, It's different with Naomi because she is a black and Asian woman. The connecting thread is the innocence. Mm -hmm. It's also in this context when you go on holiday with your rapper boyfriend and run around having fun, you're saying that he is not somebody that can be taken seriously. Like, this is not a relationship that can be serious. It's just frivolity and frolicking. And in doing that, you are necessarily not taking your tennis career seriously. And he's not only a threat to your tennis, but to you as well. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's wild. Also, like, we've been through this with William sisters, you know, part-time tennis players, Obviously, it worked for them. It's still working for them. How many times do we have to do this? It's been 25 years of this. White people telling black people what they should or shouldn't right. be doing. One. Also, this is not even that. <laughs> this is another Grand Slam being played on a totally different surface in the middle of a pandemic within two weeks of the other one. Right. This is somebody who is actually injured, was injured. We know this. Could not play the Cincinnati final. Had her legs strapped the entire U.S. Open. But also, like, who cares? But also, curious to me, if this weren't uh, another Grand Slam, if this weren't a pandemic situation, would you even question where is Naomi Osaka if she took a month off after winning the U.S. Open when she was visibly injured? Yeah. Like, it's such a, a strange hill to die on. So, I mean, this one has been uh, in the hopper for a little while. We just wanted to talk about that because we've seen these weird tweets about Naomi and and who she chooses to associate with. Just don't do it. Don't do it. Rapper boyfriend is not something you should ever say. Period. No. That brings us to the end of this episode. We uh, we didn't actually end up telling people to kick rocks and eat dirt, but you can imagine who they were along the way. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you for listening to the episode. We'll be back with a Rolling Girls wrap uh, in a few days, really. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. The podcast is at The Body Serve on Twitter, on any social media platform that we're on. Thank you to those who have given us reviews on iTunes in the last few weeks. We've seen them. We appreciate them. We ask that if you haven't yet done so and you enjoy the show, please do give us a review. Till next time. Thank you very much.